everyone. Mina from the future here. I just wanted to let you all know that there are some audio issues with one of the hosts in this episode. We cleaned up what we could in editing, but it gets a little garbled. Thanks for understanding. Welcome to the Tightly Coupled Book Club. I'm Aji, joined by special guest host, Sally Hall. Sally's first programming language was whatever it is that you can code in on a TI-82. She spent a lot of time working in programmer-adjacent roles before becoming a developer and finding a home in back-end web dev. She's a knitter. She sews, cross-stitch, and just learned to weave. Welcome to the show, Sally. Hi! Thanks for having me. Excited to talk Rails. Sally's first Rails version was somewhere in Measure version 3 which the release notes described as, quote, when the MERB team joined the party and brought a focus on framework agnosticism, slimmer and faster internals, and a handful of tasty APIs. And for this episode, we read Active Model Basics in the Ruby on Rails guide, version 7.0.7. Sally, did you learn anything that surprised you? Yeah, the guy talked about Active Model Lint tests, which I didn't know this was a thing, that there are some test modules that you can just include in your tests, and then it will run the tests that Rails made. And I want to learn more about that. I don't know if that's compatible with RSpec, which is what I always use, but that surprised me. I did not know that existed. Yeah, me either. I threw it into a couple of models in my current projects just to see how it would go. And they all just passed. So I don't actually know what's going on. I was hoping <laughs> for a failure or two so I could see what failed, but just six green dots and not too much more information just yet. The work that I'm currently avoiding is adding models to a little Ruby app that has no Rails in it. So when I do that, maybe I'll throw that test in there and would be shocked not to get failures. I'll let you know. So you're going to be using some of the active model APIs in that Ruby app without the rest of Rails? It appears so. If I had a time machine, I would just go back and use Rails because it was very much like, I'm not going to need all of that. And maybe I still don't need all of that, but some of it would have been really nice. And going back and re doing things, I'm worried is going to be terrible. It's possible it won't be terrible. And that having read this guide so thoroughly now, I'm an active model expert and it's just going to be super easy, but we'll see. I'm really interested in how that turns out because even in the introduction to this page here, it mentions the possibility of using this without Rails because this active model also helps build custom ORMs for use outside of the Rails framework. That is exactly what I'm procrastinating on right now. Well, I say procrastinating on. I've been trying to reframe it in my mind that what I'm doing is not procrastinating on starting it, but thinking really hard about it and doing a lot of mental pre-work. Absolutely. That's something about Rails as a framework, that it really is a meta gem that collects all of these other gems together. And so many of them can work independently and be brought into projects on their own. I don't think that's something a lot of folks think of doing because Rails seems like this monolith. Yeah, it seems like one big blob, all or nothing. But really listening to some of your episodes and just learning more about it in general and realizing it is a big blob, but it's made up of smaller blobs. You can use those blobs without the big blob. That's very object-oriented like that, isn't it? So this page is actually the first page that we've done on the podcast that is labeled as a work in progress. Guides.rubyonrails.org lists all of the pages, and this one doesn't show up in the little drop down to navigate, I think because it's labeled as a work in progress. And that's maybe why it's uh, a little bit thin as far as expanding on information. Yeah, I did notice that there were several spots where I was like, please say more. Well, maybe this is the opportunity for us to go in and contribute to the guides because we've looked at few of these have been confused by the lack of a little bit more information. 
And I think we've each looked into a couple of them. This might be the opportunity to provide a little bit of that for the next folks. Yeah, that sounds terrifying and useful. The number of pull requests to Rails that I've come up with over the course of doing this that I just have not been able to bring myself to attempt is is very large. So By the end of this, it's possible that you and Mina will be more familiar with the Rails guides than anyone else. And so who better to make this pull request than the tightly coupled book club? Along these lines, a few of the chapters in here refer to ways that I have used Active Model in a Rails application more directly to have a model that is not backed by a database table. Things like the attributes API validations, especially serialization. Are there any of these that you've reached for? Yeah, the ones that you've mentioned. I've used Dirty. I've used that several times on my current project. There's a lot of ingesting data from a third-party provider and then checking, do we already know about this? If so, ignore it. If not, do a bunch of things. So updating models and being able to check any of the attributes we care about change. And we're using them on some form models, which is a pattern where someone's registering or signing up. That's one form, but we're actually going to create three different models in the backend and associate them. And so we get a model not backed by active record that is a profile form, and then it's create the user and the things that are associated with the user that we need to also create at the same time. Yeah, so this is feeling pretty familiar. I love that you brought up form models and form objects because I think that is the majority of where I have used this active model goodness before, but um, seeing a little bit more of what's available gives me thoughts about how else to use these Maybe we can touch on form objects a little bit here. I really love the use case that you just described when you have more than one model that that data needs to live in, but it's only one form to the user. You can still get all of your validation goodness and other things like that layered on top of it and treat it just as one object that then handles its own persistence to those other objects. Yeah, we had to do a lot of fun stuff with validation. I mean, fun in quotes that led to me getting pretty familiar with the um, errors on a model. Can't remember if that was part of this guide or not because I read it more than 15 seconds ago. A validator adding an error to an object. Since we're displaying the object form, we validated some of the objects that were associated. We needed to add in order for the errors to show up on the form the right way. We had to add the errors for the associated records to the form object. Mm-hmm. So that dealt with playing with validators and the errors and the way the error object on each model a little differently than what I'm used to, which is just stop valid question mark and bullet yourself for them. It opens up a lot of the Rails helpers with those error objects. You do have to manage it a little bit more if you're getting more customized like that. But one of the things that I found out a little while ago, it sort of hinted at in the guides here, I think, based on my notes, that if you define persisted question mark and ID on an active model class, then you get the Rails form knowing whether it's a a new or an edit, and it gets a little bit more of that knowledge that Rails produces with its form helpers. So there are some of those leaning into the framework and kind of looking under the hood to find this and this method and you get a lot of magic that I was hoping to find in this section, but wasn't really here, I think, because it's not really expanded on. Those little tricks are what I've been hoping to get through reading the guides cover to cover like this, because I've seen other folks use those inside knowledge things. Turning the magic into science. Like, I like to think that in the real world, magic is just science we don't understand yet. And the Rails magic is just modules I don't understand yet. Which gems I haven't dug into yet. That's awesome. I love that. It's not Rails magic. It's Rails science. 
This page seems to have been more like a table of content than an in-depth thing or a sort of map for figuring it out myself, you know? So it's not really revealing everything I want to know, but it is giving me some good words to Google, which is at least half the battle, knowing what terms to search for. Absolutely. So it feels helpful, not quite as helpful as I want it to be, but maybe in a way that when you're in school and you ask a teacher a question and they just give you a way to find the answer yourself. I know I'm learning more, but I kind of just wanted you to tell me what that means. Yeah, this page doesn't seem to have that benefit that a lot of the guides pages do where you could just drop in, get your answer bring it back to your application. This one is a little bit more, like you said, table of contents and kind of explore these on your own. Are there any in particular that you were moved to explore as you were reading through? Yeah, I did dig into a little bit where they talked about, I think it was in the dirty section, and they had used the method, first name will change, last name will change it. And I was really confused about what that was. And so I Googled, um, and I went to the actual docs for that class and and realized there's a way the whole dirty module works is that basically you say, I'm going to change this attribute, and then you change the attribute, and then you say, I changed it, we're done. So really under the hood, again, the dirty stuff is not as magic as it seems it's because in the back end the betters and the save method are all just saying about to change have changed good to go wasn't clear at all in the guide here looking at the documentations it was an oh okay that was cool I saw a couple of those methods in that sort of family of methods that I didn't know, like underscore was to tell you what the old value is and underscore change with the array of the old value and the new value. There's a lot more to that dirty checking than I thought. When you were looking into using the methods like underscore will underscore change and changes underscore applied, how much of the Does it look like you have to define yourself when you're making a model that is not backed by the database? So change might be something totally different than what active record might call a change. Right. So change could be an API call or something, which feels weird. But yeah, it seems like really all you need to do, the minimum, is what's here in this guide where the setters all attribute will change, bang. And then the say calls changes apply. That's bare minimum. And that'll get you, this has changed. This is dirty. It needs to be persisted. The values and the new values. And then the two other things I saw in the documentation that seemed useful were clear changes information. You can call that to reset changes information and restore attributes to restore the previous data. So I guess if you're doing some sort of manual rollback situation, right, or if you're defining persisted and saved differently, you probably do have a use case for defining rollback as well. And so you've got some little helpers for that too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You wouldn't be able to use the transaction or anything like that from active record if your persistence model or your persistent scheme is going to be totally different. It seems like those portions are some that I might not have reached for. A, I didn't know that they existed. (laughs) And B, I think I've most often used active model in the way that we've already talked about as kind of a form object. And so there is eventually somewhere in there an active record backed database record. But like you posited there, the API call, I hadn't considered that. And that clues off a bunch of different things of ways to use that just from that little example there. So yeah, thank you for saying that. The idea of that 
sort of makes my skin crawl, but also sounds really fun and exciting at the same time. Like, what if instead of writing to a database, you're calling to a third-party API that writes to a database? And I'm sure that this is a thing that has been done, not using Active Record or another ORM, but instead using an API as your way to persist data, which sounds scary and risky, but also reading through this dirty thing, it feels like this can give you some more control. You can have a better handle on what is actually happening where you implement these methods. And it plugs into all of that built-in goodness that Rails will give you when you're using the framework, being able to make these custom shapes around other things so that they fit into the way that Rails thinks. I don't think that I have reached for or fallen back to very often because, I don't know, I hadn't encountered that too much or anything with just a little bit of this custom plugging in is super exciting and I'm going to be looking for it everywhere now. This feels like the kind of thing that's going to live in the back of my brain, not doing anything for a while. And then someday there's going to be the perfect moment to go, ah, but if we include active model dirty, then we can do this. So the include call makes me think of something that was super confusing to me in this page. And I'm not sure that it's been filled out enough as far as this document is concerned for me to understand it is the difference between including active model API and just the other one. Active model model. I copied the quote, when including active model model, you get all the features from active model API. And then active model API says, active model API adds the ability for a class to work with action pack and action view right out of the box. And I don't, yeah, I don't know what the difference is. Why would you use API versus model? Do you get everything if you use API and not all of it if you use model or the other way around? It's not very clear. I put in my notes. I can Google this, but I don't want to. This feels like a super unhelpful way to explain active model model is, which then leads me to one of those thoughts. Well, it's open source and it's a work in progress. If you don't like it, Sally, maybe you should help fix it. It sounds like a very daunting thing. You have to go in and understand it front to back yourself, but I imagine it would be a little bit closer to, do you put an issue, say, this is what I see missing here. I have some ideas and it would be the forum for people to mob and work together to build it out. And I hope that's what the experience is. And I imagine that's what it is. And it would be folks like you and me collectively working on this page. This sounds like a job for the community. <laughs> Captain Planet. Love it. Oh, another thing that I didn't know about before is this attribute method prefix attribute method suffix that you can do here. And this allows you to define a bunch of different methods that are basically the kind of metaprogramming that Rails does for your models based on the columns of your database table. So say maybe you want reset underscore attribute on all of the attributes that this model has, it will do that. It will go through your list of attributes and define that method as you have set it in the class. And I thought that was super interesting because you could just do that. You could just define those methods, but they've given you this API to help fill out the whole thing in one go. I'm thinking now that there are certainly times where in a model I will define basically the same method a few times, but for different attributes. In my current project, there's a model that has several different dates associated with it. We have methods to format those dates specific ways, right? So instead of define scheduled for a formatted string, we could just do define attribute formatted string. And then you'd have that method for all three of those. Which would be, especially in a case like this, because formatting is so tedious and you update it one place and not all the places where it needs to be updated. And then suddenly there are commas in some places and not others. And it's a mess. Could be a way to dry up some of that annoying formatting code. Yeah. 
I think my strategy has always been to find a constant for the format string that you want. And that works in a lot of places, but not always. And still has that problem sometimes of it being a little different and you have to go change it and chase it down in five different places. This seems to be a really nice way to encapsulate that all into one method definition that hits all of those places. It reminds me of one of the first values of Rails that is listed on the intro basics guide page, that dry meaning to have one single source of truth for a particular behavior or piece of data is one of the foundational principles of Rails. And so this makes a lot of sense that this API is available because it makes it super easy to have that single source of truth. Walk in the walk. The other thing that I thought about in reading this, I kind of love the inflector methods. I remember that being something I was most surprised by when I first started using Rails. Wait, but how does it know that more than one person is people? What is that? Really, if I think about it, it's not super complex behind the scenes stuff, but it's just always been such a really handy thing to have built in and not have to worry about that on my own to just be able to call pluralize or titleize. There's whatever weird thing you want to do to a string. It's possible that we've already got an inflector that's going to do that for you. Yeah, I wrote out the list here for myself because there are so many that I didn't know were there. I've used titleize, pluralize, camelize, but there are things like underscore, downcase first, tableize, classify, dasherize, demodulize, a wealth of different ways that you might need to modify a string, including ways that go into and out of code as opposed to just the way that you would display it. One of the ones that feels more magical to me is ordinalize. And what does that one do? It will turn one, two, three, four into first, second, third, fourth. Nice. I have looked under the hood of what the inflectors are doing, and it is sort of remarkable that it's as simple as it is, even though looking at the file, it doesn't look simple at all because it's a long list of regexes of this English rule. If it ends like this, it will turn into an ending like that. For the messiness that English has as a language, especially around one-off pluralizations and things like that, it's amazing that they fit it into 25, 30 lines of regex. You know, we call it magic and it kind of feels like magic, but really what it is is it's just making it a lot more readable. When I'm looking through code that exists and I see a long regex, that method name better be real clear about what that regex is doing because I'm not going to figure it out myself. Replacing them with these methods that are already there makes it a lot more approachable and maintainable and readable. Chapter 1.4 is conversion. And at first glance, I didn't really see what was going on here. It's another one of these sections that gives you the terminology to go look it up, but doesn't have the time in this work in progress page to go too in depth. So I looked into that one a little bit. It gives the methods to model, to key, and to param. And they call those conversion methods. It's ways to get from your class into the words that will get used to build a URL, for example, or to partial path will tell Rails where this unconventional model you're building has a view partial for it. And so again, you can plug in and get all of that Rails stuff for free. If you're defining a couple of these methods, that must be the thing that Rails is calling under the hood to do what it does with the the usual models. And this is the way that you can tap into that. These are what it's using when it says, I expected to find this class in this file, but I didn't because you misspelled it. It's using the two model, two key, two param to figure out what those file names and paths should look like for this class. 
ripping down all of the magic looking behind the curtain. That's what it feels like this page did. I've recently on this project, I'm working with someone who knows the the Rails internals really well. And my eyes have been open to a lot of different ways to use Active Model, including things like decorators and presenters. A lot of those patterns that you don't know how to name except to say something er which I don't know why, but that annoys me so much. I feel object-oriented. You're supposed to be a representation of the world and presenter. That's not a thing, really. It's a nice railsy way to get around that bugaboo that I have around naming things after the pattern. You can use this to help you describe them as resources, which of course falls back to how Rails wants the routes and controllers to be thought of as objects in your system as opposed to mechanisms of the system. And there's a lot of gold in here that, like you were saying before, is going to sit in the back of my head until the specific use case comes up. I agree. Have you used things from this page for other use cases besides form objects? I'm trying to think. I feel like I have. I think I have in other cases where it's not necessarily a form object, but it is an object that represents an association of other models. So it would be a profile model that is not backed by active record. It's a user model and a preferences model and a address model. A user who has many preferences and many addresses and all of that comes together in the user's profile. Right? And then you can do things with a profile, even though it's not a profile table. I'm going to write that down because I really like that. And I want to go implement that on my current project. <laughs> yeah, that's really great. It's combining a lot of different concepts together and encapsulating it in that one place. It's kind of a presenter. It's kind of a form object. It's kind of doing a lot of different things. What is it? It's a model. You recognize that as a model in a Rails app. Its own object, just because it's not a database table. And that comes in handy when you're in situations where you end up calling a lot of user dot addresses dot first dot has zip code. And then if everything can be nullable along the way, it turns into a really gross situation where you're constantly having to dig through all of the layers every time you want to do something simple. If you just build yourself a new object that has those methods, then it's a little more approachable. It's approachable not just for you as you're going through and doing that work, but also for the next person that comes across because you've abstracted away that messiness and they can just focus on calling the one method and not realizing yeah. that it's dot first cousin dot former roommate question mark. And it dries things up too about checking whether something is nil in one place and checking whether it's blank in another place. Nothing I've ever encountered that bug. No, because everyone knows when to use empty, present, blank, nil perfectly every time. Another thing that stood out to me was including active model secure password for non-active record based models. It's one of those things that it's in here and someone took the time and the effort to add this feature. So there is a use case, but it just isn't occurring to me why you might need to have a secure password infrastructure in a model that's not backed by something that you're keeping in your own database. Maybe the use case would be for the form object because it looks like there's validation with the password confirmation and having those match and having all of that built in. If you're using like a form object that will then create a user record, I'm just making this up as I go, means that you've got it closer to the service and are able to validate it without having to go all the way down to the database level. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. Yeah. That is the sort of use case I was reaching for as I was reading that I'm always looking to do. That connects a few dots for me, I think. 
Reading through this reminded me of times where I've been in weird situations where we use secure password or something like that. So we're saving the hash of the password as you should and not the plain text. But then for some reason, there are security requirements, which so often are out of date and make things less secure that the password should have a special character and two numbers and all of that, which can be really annoying to validate, especially because I'm not saving that plain text password to my database. I'd rather just not deal with it at all. It's between you and the computer. And so I had flashbacks to trying to validate passwords like this, which is less of a thing about secure password and more of a thing about that's maybe not how you want to ensure security of your user's data. That's a rant that I can get on board with anytime, especially when the restrictions are odd and you're using a password manager and you've got a great 30 character password that has all of the symbols and everything in it and you can't use it because of some restrictive, weird shaped password requirements. You're making this worse for me. So I can get on board with that rant 100%. I had so many stories of security things that have gone so far that they've backfired. I the basic, I can't remember any of these passwords, so I write them all down on a post it. I was in college. I worked at the IT support desk, which was a lot of helping professors remember how to turn their computer on. And I remember there was this coach, I think it was the baseball coach, who could never remember his password. So we had to just override all of the requirements and just make his password baseball because otherwise he would forget it every single day. Oh no, poor coach. I can't remember if it was exactly the baseball coach. You were the baseball coach at my college and that wasn't you. I apologize. Or if you still work there, no one look up where you went to college (laughs) and try to hack the baseball coach. Get all his secure baseball emails. The lineup card for every day's game. That's important information. I just brought down an entire D3 baseball. Say no more about what division or anything it is because (laughs) we don't want people to narrow it down yet. Oh, translation. The idea that you could include translation and get the internationalization framework on an object that is not otherwise an active model. I've always really liked the robustness of Rails's built-in translation system. It's maybe a little cumbersome in the code, but allows for that flexibility so easily and approachably enough that you can include it from day one if you know this is going to be a requirement. So you don't have to retrofit it later on. It's right there, out of the box, ready to go on initial commit. And I really appreciate both that system in general and also this way to plug into it. Again, finding ways to use the framework, tap into the magic that's already coming for you. You can do it through just a couple of modules or just a few method calls to set up the point rails in the right direction. It feels very Railsy, and I don't know if other frameworks do it, but I super love that you can do that kind of thing with Rails. It feels inclusive in a way that makes my heart warm and fuzzy. If we think about it from the beginning, then the process of making this app accessible to more people who speak more languages just becomes a literal translation issue. This is a pretty concise little package of things that, like we said, is missing some depth, perhaps. But certainly for people that are aware of a lot of the different capabilities of Rails, this is pretty recognizable in a lot of ways. And I think gave me a couple of new tools to plug into that framework infrastructure for new and exciting toys to play with. I'm excited to go pick and choose the pieces of the model that I want for the thing I'm working on. Or maybe just include uh, Active Model API or Active Model Model, and maybe you'll get all of them or most of them. We don't know. Who knows? For next episode, we either have a special surprise or we'll be back to the guides reading another work in progress page, Action View Overview, in the Ruby on Rails guides. If you have feedback or constructive compliments, we can be reached on Twitter at underscore tightly coupled and on Mastodon at tightly coupled at ruby.social or email us at tightlycoupled.dev at gmail.com. 
Show notes can be found in your podcast player or tightlycoupled.dev. See you later. Reading through this, we're like Toto pulling the curtain uh, away yes. from the Wizard of Oz, manipulating all of the levers. <laughs> yep. It's just active model. Pay no attention to the class and module behind the curtain. <laughs>